From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo, What's Next? Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous shows. Today, we'll hear from Ann Bridenstine, a clinical trainer with Best Self Behavioral Health, about new developments that may help how we treat the rising scourge that is opioid addiction. The biggest feedback, most consistent feedback, is that what the community wants most is love and respect. They don't want to walk into a clinic and say, I, oh, this is what you're gonna do, one, two, three, four. They wanna walk in and hear somebody say, how can I help you? What do you need? Later on, Gregory Shervsneski sat down with Jay Moran to chronicle how a generous woman helped protect him from the evils of the Jewish Holocaust and how she raised him as her own. Seven months old baby, she is only one woman. And that woman taught me to walk, taught me to speak. I never called her by name. She taught me to call her Matenka, mommy. First off, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently passed a ruling that would make Narcan, a life-saving nasal spray that reverses the effects of an opioid overdose, available over the counter. Anne Bridenstein explains how this can help members of the community that she assists. She also helps us understand the humanistic approach we could all take to better aid people suffering from substance use disorders. Kind of reprompted this topic for us to a certain extent is the recent decision to put Narcan as an over-the-counter medicine. Mm-hmm. We're going to see that, right, in our stores. Yes, by, by early to mid-summer, they're saying we're going to see this on our shelves. It's so. a different different idea. It almost seems not that long ago when I first heard of Narcan, and now here it is, it's going to be in stores. But the need is great, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the greatest things about this progress and bringing it into our stores is that it's accessible to more populations than just those that are initially targeted. So, you know, we have... Narcan available for free in our community in a variety of different ways. There's actually 66 overdose prevention programs in Erie County alone. Um, But most of those are our clinic-based programs, a clinic where you might have to be a patient to get access and ask for um, Narcan to have at home. Um, This is a great stride in making it available just to purchase. Now, that opens Narcan up to be available to a group of people that have the resources and the ability to get to stores. So I also want to emphasize that it being an over-the-counter medication, um, we hope doesn't take away from that free state program we have that really gets that naloxone into the hands of folks. It really can't. I mean, there's no way, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no way. I mean, we've talked before we went on the air Mm -hmm. about some of the experience that you've had in dealing with with people, um, a lot of, you know, marginalized individuals who probably don't have a lot of resources. If they don't get it through a clinic, they don't get it for free. They probably are going to suffer the, the consequence, yes. which is fatal, of course. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's – and I think that that's the um, – unfortunately, the fear, though, in some of the reading of these articles. And I think we've been reassured by New York State in general that that overdose prevention program isn't going to go anywhere right. with this approval, um, which is great. You know, right. New York State is a well-funded state when it comes to our naloxone program. We're lucky for that. Um, there's not 
you know, other states in the U.S. don't have that same access. So um, it's very when we read articles that talk about the cost of supporting these programs and then it being over the counter, some folks in the community go, but wait, what's happening? It's not going anywhere. We're going to have it. And you also also see the advantage being though, that now that it's going to be in stores, it's going to bring a certain societal normalization to it. Absolutely. That doesn't exist right now. Absolutely. And I think, you know, right now, you kind of have to be able to reach out and ask where to get it. And there's been so much work with the Department of Health to make it more accessible. This, putting it at our stores next to what we're used to, our Tylenols, our Benadryls, our things that we go into and buy seasonally, right, um, is going to start to destigmatize the need for naloxone in our community. Um, I hope that in time that also destigmatizes drug use in general, right? People hide with stigma and shame, and when people hide, unfortunately, we get situations where people die alone in abandoned houses because they had nowhere safe to be. They had no one safe to be around. So that work of visually putting that medication next to a medication we're very used to is going to start normalizing it, Uh, not just for our folks that shop, but our employees that stock those shelves, our managers that receive shipments of these things in the stores, um, it's going to make naloxone, you know, on par with Tylenol. Okay, great, right? And I'm not going to say this is going to happen overnight. No. But eventually, I have to believe that that's that's how things going. change. That's when it what the more OTC common. is going to do for us. We're also hearing a lot more about trank fentanyl mixed with. Xylazine, which I believe is like for domestic animals, I believe, a tranquilizer of some sort. We're seeing this in Western New York? So, yes. And Mm -hmm. I want to be careful. So, xylazine, I've done a bunch of trainings, xylazine. I worked in um, with some groups in Philadelphia around their response to xylazine being introduced to their their drug supply. Also, this is... um, a substance that has become a drug of choice in Puerto Rico. So there's a lot of experience we can draw on from the providers there. So um, in our current area, um, this is more identified as a contaminant in our drug supply. So what I mean by that, I actually brought you some, I did some testing of samples. Uh, You can do that through public health schools and stuff. So I sent in some samples for analysis. Okay. And um, we know that it's here, but it's not it, the the amount of it that's in our supply is minimal. Okay, as compared to so it's a contaminant other... rather than. Okay. I hope I'm making a good distinction. No, there. I understand. Whereas, right. like, our supply right now is predominantly fentanyl or fentanyl-like substances, fentanyl analogs. Um, there's some caffeine in there sometimes. There's some Benadryl in there, believe it or not, sometimes, um, and some other weird things. But xylazine has really been identified as a contaminant. So xylazine is a, a veterinary analgesic and sedative. It has opioid-like effects. The draw to maybe a batch, you know, folks can't test their drugs on the street, right, For, there are some xylazine test strips out there, but it's FDA approval has to go through all these things. Um, you don't necessarily know what's in your substance. You go to who has the stuff that worked, 
that's the that's the right. information right. folks have, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it's appealing because it lasts longer than fentanyl. It fentanyl is fentanyl a very brief high, has correct? Legs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and that's all they're talking about in the community: the stuff that has legs. And you know, as a provider, we're like, oh gosh, what are what are we going to do? Well, I'm going to tell you what I teach a best self as the the response to this. Xylazine is a contaminant. We know our response to an opioid overdose, right? Because remember, this is still fentanyl with this contaminant. Yes. Is administered Narcan. Now, at any point, those ratios could change. They probably change with each batch that comes through. Yeah. We want to make sure that the folks who are using drugs know now more than ever, it's important to find a way to administer Narcan the way you know how and call 911. That sedative and analgesic um, comes on quickly, so people tend to fall asleep much faster. I think about our folks in super vulnerable positions who are sleeping outside, Mm. who are maybe, I hate to tell you, we're in a community where, I mean, we're in a nation where drugs are criminalized to the point where we're ducking behind buildings, behind garbage, dumps, you know, wherever. Public bathrooms that might not be checked on all the time. Um, We people fall asleep faster and the risk increases. So really making sure that the message is give Narcan and call 911. Give Narcan, call 911. Um, I will say having been in, you know, running this consumer advisory group has kept me really on the ground with with folks the last couple of years. And Zalazine's been here a while. Okay. There's another key indicator to this. So a couple of things we started hearing a couple of years ago. One, oh man, it took me nine doses of Narcan for this person to wake up. That's a lot of Narcan. Wow. So, and we know pharmacologically, right, that um, we know how naloxone works. We use it in our hospitals. We know we don't need that many. Something else is happening. And that's the conversation I started having, folks. Like, something else is happening. That's a lot of Narcan to need for just opiates. Right. Um, then we started seeing some odd wounds. And this is a hallmark for xylazine. There's some research that indicates that um, there's an interruption in, at a cellular level, right? Like the O2 binding to the heme. What it really causes is um, wounds beyond the site of injection. So we're starting to see necrotizing wounds and arms and legs. And they start off real small, like a little bruise. And it's because the tissue dies at the most distal point it travels to. Mm. But the biggest takeaway, um, because what I'm he- hearing pulled out of some of the news reports is it, it Narcan doesn't work on it. Please, let's not create any. I would never want to put messaging out into the community that Narcan doesn't work on something right right is it is it technically correct yes it's technically correct but it's a contaminant in our supply we want folks to continue using narcan as they have been as far as the wound in my dream world we'd have a mobile wound care management mm-hmm. <laughs> program that's what they have in philadelphia really and and in maryland since you brought up the example then what's been the impact of those I mean, it's a major public health crisis. It's when we talk about these wounds, it's not something that heals in a few days. We're looking six, 12 months. Mm. And those are in ideal circumstances. Ideal, right? 
I've yet to meet folks that have the ideal circumstances, the access to the supplies needed to take care of them, the willingness of people to talk to them about what's happening with their bodies, the education, the information. That's got to get out there. Um, And, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, people are losing limbs, fingers, arms, legs, right? These can get so bad. And it's not an easy thing to show someone what has happened to your body, right? We're going to wrap back around to that stigma. So not only is there the stigma of I'm someone who uses drugs. Now there's the stigma of there's something going on with my body and it's really scary. And I'll save the details of showing you the pictures, but they're very intense wounds. There. Mm. Um, and this is all from injecting. It's all from the xylazine. Right. So there's like, and I, I make that distinction because there are certain injection-related wounds that as a community, you know, working with people who inject, we were used to seeing and used to providing information on. This is a totally different physiological process. Wow. Um, it literally, the, the tissue dies at that point. So um, they're at risk for infection. They're at risk for prolonged healing. Nutrition pays, plays the largest part in healing these kinds of wounds. And we're working with folks that probably don't have access to the, to the nutrients, the nutrient-dense type foods that we need. You brought it up and made the description, which was uh, pretty stark, about someone feeling that stigma about drug use, perhaps, like you said, ending up in an empty house, an abandoned house somewhere by themselves um, and maybe dying of an overdose because of it. But let's talk a little bit more about the how the stigma becomes an obstacle for not just staying alive, but the possibility of, of better health. I want to start by saying, as a professional in the community, it's important to consistently reevaluate our own judgments, our own habits, our own routines. We have learned a lot as a community working with people who use drugs in the last seven, 10 years, the landscape has completely changed, right? Folks used to have to complete substance use treatment before their mental health could be treated. We now have fully integrated clinics where we understand that these are co-occurring disorders. Um, detox used to be very difficult to get into. A lot of progress has been made. Um, but it's going to take a lot of time to undo the harms of that stigma. And I really, truly believe that on the front lines, so our, all from our security staff up to our counselors, up to our doctors, up to our nurses, we all have to reevaluate how we speak about people who use drugs. Okay. We, we want to get rid of the language that is, oh, it's an addict, um, you know, it's a frequent flyer, it's just somebody who's going to leave again in three days and come back in a month and want the same thing. We have to really start to understand that um, substance use disorder is a, is a diagnosable condition that we have to treat and we have to understand better. Um, I run a, or I facilitate a consumer advisory board uh, for New York State where I work with people who are currently living the experience, um, trying to access services and we have a discussion once a month about what that's like right now in the environment. I do this for the National Harm Reduction Coalition. And um, the biggest feedback, most consistent feedback, is that 
what the community wants most is love and respect. They don't want to walk into a clinic and say, I, oh, this is what you're going to do, one, two, three, four. They want to walk in and hear somebody say, how can I help you? What do you need? Um, so as professionals changing our language, so we're more approachable. Stop calling people addicts. Start using the language people who use drugs, people who are struggling with their relationship with substances. Person-first language. Um, and then you know, examining our own stuff. Some of us have things in our personal lives that might affect our initial reaction. Right? Yeah, can you give me an example? That, that intrigues me. Yeah. So, you know, I've worked with, in these trainings I do for even, you know, with, with Best Health Behavioral Health or the National Harm Reduction Coalition when I'm introducing this approach of love and compassion and person-centered care uh, with folks there, is inevitably someone in the in the crowd that has had a family member who has struggled. Okay. There's a lot of emotion trapped in that, right? Like if this is your brother, your cousin, a parent, there's a lot of relationship dynamics that can affect how you approach this topic. Sure. And I want to say everybody has access to the best therapy in the world, right? But <laughs> we're <laughs> right. working on making mental health treatment normalized right. and everybody gets great therapy. But we also have to approach each other with some grace. So it can be difficult conversations, right? Somebody might come to me and say, well, that's just enabling them, right? We hear that language sometimes. Well, if I let them live with me, there'll never be a consequence to their drug use. We have to examine that. We have to be comfortable having a conversation with something that might feel a little confrontational. How do you address that then? I mean, I, I, I totally, I, as you said that, I could see that conversation going on in living rooms across the country. Oh, Just yes. like that. You know, we can't, <laughs> we can't keep helping you do this. We know you're doing this. We can't yeah. keep helping you doing this. You've got to leave. Yeah. How do you then try to interject something that's a little different? Yeah, I, so... I first distinguish that there is what that person is going through as a family member, and then there's what the person who's struggling with that relationship is going through. And that can be hard to distinguish when you're in it. You're living it in the moment. And having support around you know, using some of these basic tools that we learn in, in coping and different kinds of strategies around putting some boundaries up. And that doesn't mean you can't come home after 10 p.m., right? And I don't mean like physical boundaries like that. I mean um, emotionally safe boundaries. The message that you want the community, when I'm saying the community, the greater community, not the community of, of people who are dealing in drug, are drug users, I should say, um, you're, what you want them to know about this experience and what you think the community, how it could um, make for a better life for a lot of people who are in difficult circumstances right now? I think we have to start by unlearning some bad, I don't want to say habits. A lot of times when I have those difficult conversations, people don't even realize how it might be received. Right. So go back to something I said earlier, having those difficult conversations. Learn from each other. Don't be afraid to learn. It doesn't matter if you have 20 years experience, six years experience, three months. Let's keep learning. Let's keep improving. Let's keep getting better. Most importantly, if you're in a position of power within your organization, within your community, 
start bringing folks in to the conversations. Um, that's my my real hope in talking about engaging people who use drugs, right? They need to be part of our conversations. Um, ask them, how are you doing? What do you need? They know. Just nobody's listening. Nobody's asking. Um, appro- approaching things that way, I think, will help the growth and support of the community. We know We know it works. You know, I've, I've worked with somebody mid-state. I volunteer with another organization in Rochester, and um, I saw somebody six months apart, and I was like, oh, my God, your health has improved so much. You look amazing. No, 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 what changed? And he's like, I found a group of people who were there when I needed them, and they just loved on me. Like, don't forget the power of that. That was Ann Bridenstine of Best Self Behavioral Health. For our second highlight, we would be remiss to not revisit our conversation with Gregory Szewznewski. As a seventh-month infant born during the Nazi occupation of Poland, his Jewish birth mother had to part ways with her young son and leave him on the doorstep of a generous Catholic woman who would do her part to protect the boy from persecution during the Holocaust. Jay Moran sat down with Mr. Szewznewski on Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, to hear his story. So, Greg, you were born in Vilnius, Lithuania. Yes. 1941. Yes. Uh, the Nazis had occupied at that time or not yet? I was born two months before Nazi invaded Soviet Union. My parents tried to escape, but did not manage to escape, so they had to remain in city. City was occupied just four years, four, I'm sorry, four days after beginning of uh, uh, invasion. June, June, June 26, city already was occupied. I was two months old. Hmm. Obviously, you don't remember no, that specifically, that, that, but we no. appreciate the, the, the outline. So then, how did life, as you can look back and understand, I'm sure you've pieced together your what happened in your infancy and your young childhood between your own memories and what other people have told you. What happened next for your family? Well, uh, from day one, even before city was occupied, Jews already suffered from uh, local population, but as soon as city was occupied, those famous Nuremberg laws were implemented, uh, and Jews were grabbed on streets and their houses and their businesses, and taken to nearby forest placed, uh, which calls Panavi, and executed there. But chasing Jews all over the city was very non-productive. So I think it's at the end of August or beginning of September, Nazis requested all the city Jews to move to very small area of what uh, is called as Old Town. It's traditionally Jewish area, but they make it even smaller and created ghetto. Actually, they created two ghettos. Uh, ghetto number two consisted of just three small streets, and it lasted just for one month. During that month, children 
sick people, older people were taken to Panare and executed. Uh, people capable of working were moved to get a number one. Uh, you may call it luck, but my parents with me at, at the time, I think about five months old, were forced to move immediately to get a number one. Otherwise, I would be dead if we ended up at Geta 2. And right away, uh, Nazis started so-called actions. There were children actions, there were senior actions. Actions meaning they were looking for specific people like children. Children were non-productive. They were consumers of food, useless. So they were having action arresting children and taking to Panava and executing the same. Children. Children, yes. Uh, during two such children actions, my parents managed to hide me, but they realized that they will not be able to hide me endlessly. And at the same time, when uh, Ghetto 2 was already liquidated and my father's relatives were forced to move to get the number one, my father found out that all my cousins, three, four, five years old, already were dead. Mm. So they realized that they have to do something to save my life. So they were looking for ways, first of all, how to smuggle me out of ghetto and where to smuggle. And they found out about Polish woman living in the city. Her name is Miss Alexandra Dziewiecki. Totally non-political person. She didn't care for communism. She didn't care for fascism. She cared for children. She had heart of gold. She didn't have her own children, but if she saw orphan on the street, she made sure to take the child to her apartment to feed the child and try to f find family which will accept the child. If she did not succeed, the child stayed with her. And my parents found out about her and managed to communicate with her asking if she will agree to take in Jewish child. And she agreed. She was deeply, deeply religion, Catholic woman. So now my parents had place where to hide me. Now how to smuggle me mm. out of ghetto. Uh, that ghetto number one was, was not big, maybe overall maybe 10 short streets. You can walk from one side to another side of ghetto, maybe in less than 10 minutes. But all the streets leading out of ghetto were blocked, and only one street had gates. And through that gate, a group of Jews in the morning were taken to their working places, and at night were led back to ghetto. Uh, my mother was forced to work as cleaning lady in various city offices. And because she didn't have just one place, every day she had to go to different offices, she had to carry with her uh, her cleaning supply line, cleaning bucket, 
the rocks and so on. So one day, I think it was middle of November, 1941, I was seven months old. My parents put me into that bucket. I assume, I don't know, but I assume maybe they gave me a few drops of some wine or something <laughs> keep, <laughs> to, make, keep quiet. to make sure that I will be sleeping in oh that my. bucket hmm. and cover me with rocks. And in the morning when my mother was taking with a column of Jews to her workplace, she, as every morning, carried that bucket with her and at a specific place, she just drops that bucket, picked up empty bucket, and continued. You know, I talk about it number of times during the year with all my presentations, and I emphasize I am already 82 years old, and I still cannot imagine feeling of Jewish mother leaving her newborn child on the street hoping the child will survive, hoping, not being sure, hoping. I, I cannot imagine her feeling. But bottom line, I ended up in the basement apartment of Miss Alexandra Javetsky. I want to obviously talk about Miss Alexandra, but, and you, you brought up that question, but just to follow up a little bit about your mother. That was the last time you saw your mother. Yes. This is last time I saw her, last time I felt her touch, yes. Seven months old in a bucket. Yes. But she saved your life. Yes, absolutely. Um, jumping ahead a little bit in the story, what happened to your mother? What do we know? In 1943, rumors spread around the city that ghetto will be liquidated. There was very active underground movement in ghetto. Uh, but underground fighters decided instead of uprising like in Warsaw ghetto, they decided that better they will try to leave ghetto and join partisans in forest. So one of tasks performed by underground activities to help young people to escape. But when the rumors spread that the ghetto will be liquidated, a big group of Jews decided to leave together. And that group was led by my parents. They were very active in underground activities. Uh, my father told me that eventually about 50, 60 Jews in one group like uh, normal group going to work, left openly through the gate. Uh, and when they were passing some place in the city where Jews were working, those working Jews realized that this escape is going on. So they joined that group and eventually became a group of about 150 people. Mm. And they almost reached forest, but they were ambushed, and out of 150 people, only seven survived. My father survived and eventually reached partisans in forest and for more than a year continued fighting Nazis. 
My mother, unfortunately, was captured and taken to Panavi and murdered. You end up meeting back with your father, but we can't, we can't uh, go to that without talking about the woman who took you in, the Catholic woman who took you in. What was life? What do we know about life as a seven-month-old being adopted by a woman you never met before? She never met you. She didn't know your parents. Uh, she never met face to face my parents. Uh, I don't know who picked up that bucket. Most likely her. Most likely she saw my mother dropping off that bucket. So maybe he saw her face. She never saw my father. Uh, so I ended up in her basement apartment, which I clearly remember how it looked like. Uh, you go to basement, staircase, basement, you open the door, an additional three steps already inside of that room going down to floor level. And it's long, narrow room, and the middle of the room arch separated into two, and an opposite wall window on the ground level because it's basement, a reasonably big window, person could climb through that such window. And to your right, big wood burning stove, only heating cooking facility. This I remember. I don't remember if there was electricity. I, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember. I remember that it always was dark. It was dark. It was cold and smoky. Mm. Smoke constantly was filling up that apartment because it, uh, you had to heat it uh, during the winter, and during the winter you don't open w window. So smoke was constantly there. This I remember. Uh, I don't remember, of course, her taking me to City Hall for registration, but uh, when I ended up in her apartment, during the war, every person in the city has to be registered. Uh, Nazis requested that re registration to make sure that there is no guerrillas living, hiding in the city and so on, plus food was distributing by vouchers to living re registered residents. And suddenly, Miss Alexandra has seven-month-old baby unregistered. So she took me to City Hall under Nazi power, went to registration office, and told them that she found child on the step of the church, and she wants to register me and adopt me and need to register to my luck, I didn't look like Jewish child, so she didn't risk that people will recognize a Jewish child. And being so deeply religion, she selected Catholic saint, Saint Stanislavus of Kostko, as my guardian angel. Uh, you know, biggest Polish church in Buffalo is Saint Stanislavus Church. And she registered me as Stanislav Marian, last name Kostko. So 
In one stroke of pen, Jewish boy Greg became Polish child Stanislav Marian. Now I was registered. She was getting vouchers for food, and she was reasonably safe. Uh, I don't know uh, if she was getting specific food for a child or, or she was exchanging, uh, but on the p one of pictures I have and I show it during my presentations, uh, oldest orphan living with her girl, I don't remember her name, uh, Christina. Christina, yes, I, I think her name is Christina. <laughs> Uh, she was taking me on stroll along walls of ghetto, so my parents through the windows could see that I am alive and well. And at that picture, I look pretty well dressed, pretty well fed. So I assume that she took really, really good care of me. And you have to realize, seven-month-old baby sees only one woman and that woman taught me to walk taught me to speak and speak polish language mm. of course i never called her by name she taught me to call her matenka mommy so she was my mommy and she remained for the rest of my life as my, my mommy, at least in my attitude toward her. Sure. Yes, she saved me. So you're, she teaches you to walk. Where, how did life, what was the trajectory of life then after she has you registered with the city? You're hopefully safe to a certain extent. How does life go from there? Well, you keep in mind I was baby. I don't, rem sure. I don't remember much. Uh, I just know that I was well taken care of. Uh, I know, not that I remember, but I know for sure, and I have documents proving that she had number of children more. She had one more Jewish child. If we have time, I can tell story how that child survived. Okay. Her name is Gitella Gittelman. Do you I, think of her as your sister? You may call. Okay. Yes. Well, when we come back to her, we'll ask about your sister. Yes. Okay, but go ahead and continue. That, on, that I remember. I remember more after the war when my father eventually came back and eventually picked me up, but I still was attached to Miss Alexandra. Your story is uh, tremendously compelling. I uh, just want to clarify part of the detail then. So your father left Vilnius for a time to go fight and try to fight and then was able to come back and reunite with you. Yes. Uh, he escaped ghetto in 1943. I think it was August 1943. He survived that ambush, uh, which I think he reached in Belarus, partisan in Belarus, which Belarus's Belarus border was uh, thirty kilometers from from Vilnius, uh, and for more than a year he fought with Belarus partisans, 
uh, until Vilnius was liberated, I think it's June 1944. And he came back uh, first hoping to find out what happened to my mother, his wife, uh, and knowing that he had a had child. So he came back to the city. How did he find you? Uh, I assume that he knew where Miss Alexandra was living. He never met her. Uh, uh, therefore, it took him time uh, to get me because she refused. She said, Sir, I never saw you in my life, and you came from the street, and you claim that my Stasik is your son. I don't know. So he had to find living witnesses who could prove that story. And eventually, when the story was proved, she says, okay, if you're a father, it's your son. Wow. That's, it must have been obviously just very difficult for her. And It was difficult for her. It was difficult for me. I, I don't remember details, but I assume... I was taking away from mama, from my mommy, to some person who I never saw in my life. So yes, it was a difficult time for everyone. I mentioned about another Jewish girl living with Miss Alexandra. Her name is Gitella Gitlman. He was younger than me. She was born in ghetto to the parents and grandparents who did not have work permit, which means they were destined for Panave, for extermination. Their family managed to build false wall in the room they occupied. Because it was big family, they managed to occupy one room. Because in the ghetto, in one room were living number of families, but their family was big. So they occupied one room and they built that false wall. So during that action or search, their family was hiding behind that wall. First action was taken by Jewish uh, police and it lasted just less than a day. So they were hiding there and her grandfather covered her mouth with his mouth, giving her a chance to breathe through his lungs so she would not cry. Months later, Gestapo performed action of search, and that search lasted for two days. So they were hiding behind that wall for two days. They managed to get some kind of medication, like for anesthesia, and put that girl to sleep with that medication. So two months old girl for two days were under that medication. Most likely she would never even wake up. Somehow as soon as surgery was over, her parents, I don't know how, but they managed to smuggle her to Miss Alexandra. But this was a different story. Kitella was typical Jewish child. Miss Alexandra could not take her to City Hall. That heroic woman risking her life she built doll size of child and took the doll to city hall and when she entered the registration department she told everyone please don't come close i have dying child that child is sick with some kind of 
infection disease, so you may get sick. That child is dying. She may die in an hour, she may die in a day. But I am Christian. I cannot throw child on the street. I want to give her human burial. I need birth certificate and I need death certificate. When people heard infection disease, they wanted to get rid of her as soon as possible. They registered birth, they registered death, gave her a piece of paper, get out of here. Having birth certificate, Miss Alexander managed to get Gitella into Catholic hospital and save her life. Her parents survived, and right after the war, they picked her up and moved to Palestine. And they were leaving Palestine when, in 1957, Miss Alexander moved to Poland. Gitele parents communicated with her, sent her medication, and so on and so on. Uh, in 19, looks like in 1992, Mother of Gitella submitted testimony about Miss Alexander to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. And at that time, Miss Alexander was recognized as righteous among nations. And when we visited Palestine, Israel with my wife, and we went to Yad Vashem, we saw that... Uh, stone monument with hundreds of names of righteous among nations, and we found her name, Javetsky Alexander. Um, so how long did you stay in, uh, in Lithuania with your, with your father then? Did you move on fairly soon after that? How, how did that go? Uh, did you move? You, you were with your father after you left Miss Alexander yes, with I, your I father? Stayed, I stayed with my uh, father, uh, until when when I was drafted in in military, uh, nineteen fifty eight, I think I was drafted to Russian military. Mm -hmm. uh, so I I left to serve in Russian military. Uh, after one year of serving outside uh, in Latvia. I was transferred to Vilnius, my hometown, where I served for another two years. And being already in Vilnius, I married my fiancé. And when I was released from military, I moved already living uh, with my wife, never uh, coming back in living with uh, my father. Uh, how was, where did your father go from there? How, uh, when did he uh, pass? He passed in 1967. Hmm. Yes, he was. He was sick because life in forest, life in ghetto, life in forest does not improve your health. So he he was pretty, pretty sick. So he passed away in 67. So, in 1967, you went back to Poland. Yes. Uh, my uncle, brother of my mother, he survived the war and ended up living in Poland. And we decided to visit him. So we went to Poland. 
uh, and basically he asked us if we know where Miss Alexandra lives, and my wife remember her address. She was living, with my uncle lived in Warsaw, and Miss Alexandra was living in Poland. Poznan. Poznan, I'm sorry. Uh, and we jumped in the car, <laughs> and we drove across entire Poland to uh, Poznan, and uh, we realized she was, she was living in a retired nun's dormitory uh, because when she left Soviet Union in 1957, uh, there was agreement between Soviet Union and Poland that uh, people who were citizens of Poland until 1939 could freely leave Soviet Union. She decided to leave uh, to Poland. Well, while living in Soviet Union, uh, the only income she had was uh, 600 rubles pension she received for saving life of major of Russian army during uh, fight for liberation of city. When she moved to Poland, and move from one city to another, that pension lost track, and eventually she ended up without any income, so she went to church and asked for help, and at that time they gave her room in the dormitory. Uh, so we found her there, and we ended her room. She, my uncle asked her, in, of course in Polish language, do you recognize? this gentleman, and she looked at me, no, I don't know this person, and my uncle says, this is Stasik. Our recollection with my wife is totally different. Okay. <laughs> uh, the way I recall, I could read all the, her feelings on her face. She was ready to cry, but she took all took hold of herself not to ruin moment and she just said I knew that I will see you again mm. of course she hugged me and kissed me and of course everyone was crying and uh, we, we talk about her life about our life at the time we already had our daughter so we shared picture with her and uh, you can uh, imagine a room in nuns dormitory is very very simple bed table chair and wardrobe and she opens that wardrobe and one shelf whole shelf was packed with every single letter every single greeting card the ever sent her. She didn't destroy anything. She kept as memory every, everything, everything. And at that point, she removed two documents. In 1943, when rumors spread that ghetto will be liquidated, she realized that most likely my parents will be dead 
and I will be her child for the rest of our lives. And she decided, wait a minute, yes, we registered, I registered him, but I don't have any piece of paper. So in 43, she went back to City Hall and told them, listen, guys, two years ago you registered my son, but you didn't give me any piece of paper. Can you give me a copy of that birth record? They gave it copy of Stanislav Mavian Kostko, parents unknown, and so on. She kept it. She gave it to me. Hmm. And there was piece of newspaper from 1944. I mentioned she saved life of major. During the fighting for liberation of cities, through the window she saw that someone fall down in our courtyard. She didn't care if it was German or Russian. She saw human being in need of help. 60 years old. She went out of her basement, crawled to that person, pulled him to basement window, eventually pulled him into her basement, took care of her rounds. And as soon as city was liberated, she reported to Russians that she has a Russian soldier. Medics came over and realized it was not soldier, it was major Russian army. From political standpoint, it was a great event. Local population saves life of liberator. So military immediately sent military correspondent to write story. And that correspondent saw a bunch of little ki- children running in that basement, so he was curious, and Miss Alexandra told him story about each child. He was so amazed that biggest portion of that article was about her saving these mm. children. And that whole article, it, it calls Big Family, yeah? uh, starts with my story, how I got there, uh, continue with story of Gitella Gittelman, and there was there is picture, and on that picture, uh, first to the left, that Christina girl who stole me, me and Gitella and another child. So she kept <laughs> that newspaper. So she gave me that burst record, and she gave me that newspaper and. We, we still have it today and we value it tremendously as as memory of the sweet lady. So it was tremendous, absolutely tremendous meeting. We promised her that we will visit her as often as we could. No, it's different country it was not easy even it was communist uh, power in poland still to get from soviet union to any other country even communist country was very very difficult but we promised that we will do our best unfortunately just one year later she passed away Mm. in 1968. i'm sorry sorry to hear that how are we doing how you're, you've got the wisdom of 82 years. How 
And when I say we, how is the world doing it, not being bystanders? Pretty badly. Pretty badly. Anti-Semitism is on the rise all over the world. Uh, France, Germany, Lithuania, Poland, everywhere anti-Semitism is on the rise. How to fight it? I'm not really equipped to give suggestions. I do my part in fighting by bringing message not to be bystander. Right, and I guess that was my comment that was going to be. It's the only way to fight it is for good people, and there were probably good people in the World War II, in World War II in Lithuania who were bystanders, who didn't participate, but at the same time allowed. Yes. Uh, take a Poland. In one hand, there were horrible acts of anti-Semitism before war and after the war when Holocaust survivors coming from the concentration camps were murdered. Horrible. But at the same time, Poland has highest number of righteous among nations, over 6,500. So to me, Poland is represented by Ms. Alexander Zivetsky. This is what Poland is to me. We thank you for joining us. This has been Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. We also would like to thank all our guests, Anne Bridenstine and Gregory Shrivnesky. As a reminder, Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday 10 to 11 and gets re-aired each night at 9 p.m. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts or the Amplify BTPM app, as well as WBFO.org. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening.